0: On that note, let's turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, will not you turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. And then we'll be reading from verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2 and 11. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Hear him is Jesus. They came to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus responds to this criticism with a couple of parables, one which we'll look at in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, "'How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father.'" And they began to celebrate. We're going to be looking at this, this morning a very famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. I'm sure many of you are familiar with its contents, but perhaps not in the context in which Jesus shares it. And uh, it comes at a very important stage in Jesus' ministry. He is facing two major criticisms for the kind of fruit that his ministry is bearing. And you might find this a little bit odd this morning. But uh, the one thing that he was criticized for by the Jews around him was the fact that his preaching attracted tax collectors and sinners. Now, a sinner in your New Testament is not simply just uh, somebody who maybe hasn't come to faith yet, or or I'm not too sure. There There could be a number of angles to look at that. In the minds of a Jew, a sinner was somebody who had such a moral failure or whose lifestyle was such that they were rejected in the synagogue. They would not be allowed, if this was a synagogue in Jesus' time, they would not be allowed into these doors. And not only were they not allowed in the spiritual context or setting of worship, they were to be shunned in the marketplace. So if Betty was a sinner and she was there getting her groceries and Martha sees Betty at the market, they would not, uh, Martha would reject Betty, wouldn't talk to her. So he was, they were so surprised that Jesus would attract these kind of people that they tried so hard to shun. Secondly, not only was Jesus attractional in his ministry, but they were gobsmacked by the fact that he actually went after relationships with them. He received them not only to his ministry, but spent time with them in their homes. Now, if you were a Pharisee or a religious Jew, that would be something that would be considered defilement. You did not eat with sinners, tax collectors, or Gentiles. And Jesus turns the criticism on its head. He tells three parables, which shows the Jews what he's actually doing. And you must remember, Jesus came to this earth bearing the heart of God for the world. And so he's coming with this responsibility of being the chosen Messiah for the world. And he tells the first parable, which is about the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And he says, Jews, listen to this. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over a sinner that repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He said, you guys are so concerned about your holy huddle of 99 when God's eyes actually is on the lost sheep outside, who is on the outskirts. And SBC, this is a very, very uh, serious statement for us because God's not too concerned about how slick our programs are. He's not too concerned about how amazing our building is or even how nice our worship is. You want to know what gives God a kick? Is that when somebody comes into these buildings, how accessible is Jesus to them? How accessible is the promise of forgiveness of sin and eternal life? And you want to know, you want to judge my preaching or this pulpit. It is how much can this kind of preaching attract people who are broken and in need of Jesus and make this a place where they can find him without having to go through all the religious etiquette and social orders of SBC. And you and I bear this responsibility. You see, it's easy to point to the Jews and say, Jews, hey, you are the people of God. You know the scriptures. In your own life, you've seen the mercy of God poured out upon you over and over again. And yet here you are standing in judgment and condemnation Of those that need me, you have the responsibility, Jews, as the people of God, to show that my posture to the world is one of mercy, mercy. And this morning, for us as a church, I want to ask you, where you live, work, and play, that posture of the heart of God being merciful, do people pick that up in your presence? Because what we are about to read today in the prodigal son touches the very deepest heart of God that he has for the person who's an outcast. And what's special about the prodigal son is it's aimed at the believer that has backslidden. See, the other, par- the other parables, which maybe we'll have some time to unpack them in the future, they're about people who have never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ yet. And they are the outskirts. They're the ones who are needing the gospel and the grace of God to bring them back into the faith. Or bring them back into the faith. But this parable is saying, don't just think on the outskirts are those that have never come to faith in Jesus. In that group, there are those that have blown it badly who were once Christians and we're talking about in this parable a son who is a member of the household of God and I am so grateful for this parable first and foremost because Jesus takes for granted Christians will blow it he takes it for granted and in my life I tell you now I am so thankful for the grace that this parable brings not just for the person who has to come to faith but for the person who has already received it And so there's four things I really want to unpack with the time that we have left. Four major things that we need to see in this parable of the prodigal son. The first is this. If we kick hard enough, God will let us have our own way. If we kick hard enough, God will let us have our own way. Secondly, we need to see the slippery slope of sin. Very important in this parable. It's given so that it might guard us and bring us back. Thirdly, we need to look at how the prodigal was restored. It's very important because some of us here this morning are saying, I just relate already to this guy who's feeling far from God. I want to know how to come back. And thirdly, fourthly, sorry, is to look at how is he restored? Well, the first point, if we kick hard enough, God will let us have our own way. In this point, I want to ask us a question this morning. What, if you had to ask, is your definition of sin? Think about it for a moment. If you had to stand and somebody asked you, what is your definition of sin? Anybody want to take a shot here this morning? You want to go for it? (laughs) Okay, don't worry. I'll tell you what mine is. (laughs) It is this. It is going after what God is not giving it is going after what God is not giving. And the first thing we see in this story is that this young whippersnapper son asks his father for his inheritance. When are you supposed to get your inheritance? When your parents pass away, not so? So you know already, that's, uh, you may have heard a piece before, that this guy was overstepping the mark. He was asking for what was not his yet. It was coming But he wouldn't wait for the Father to give it at the right time. Now that's very important. Sin, for me, is summarized in the lines of that Queen song. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. I want it now. That's it. That's the definition of sin. No, no um, pointing fingers at Freddie Mercury, please. Don't say that, that he, but he is, this is spot on of the human condition, is that what sin is, is wanting it all and wanting it now. And this is the crux of the matter. You see, This son didn't wait. And this is what sin is. Sex before marriage is exactly that. You see that hot guy, you see that sexy girl, And you want it all, you want it all, and you want it now. eh? Someone's gunning for your reputation in the office. You want vindication. So what do you do? You slander, you gossip, you manipulate, you get going behind the scenes. Why? Because we can't wait for God to vindicate our reputation. We want it all, and we want it now. Uncontrollable debts, those credit cards, two, three, four, swapping. You want it all, you want it now not living off the provision that God gives to us for each day. It can go on and on. Ultimately, sin is gratifying the flesh now. And I want to make this very clear this morning, church. We have to learn to give thanks when God says no. I'll say it again. We have to learn to give thanks when God says no. I am so grateful God says no to a lot of my prayers. Ever thought about this? Because ultimately, you want to know what the impertinence of this story is and what the major problem is? It is this. Is that this younger son, and it's a younger son for the reason, he's got no life experience. He doesn't know anything about really what he's doing. He is going against the wisdom of the Father. He's saying, I know better than you, Dad. I see a far-off country. I see the lifestyle. I see what I want to do. And you know what? God, I'm telling you now. The follower said, my boy, you are pushing the limits. I want it, Dad. No, my boy, I'm telling you, was push- I want it all, and I want it now. Do you want to know what faith is? Faith is a willingness to submit to the fact that God says no, even when we want it to be yes. Faith is a willingness to go, Lord, I want it this way, but I'm going to submit to your way. But ultimately, coming back to this first major point, if we kick hard enough, God will grant us what we want, but it will incur terrible damage. And I want to say this morning, you want to ask me what is my biggest fear as a Christian? It is that God will take his hand off me and let me do what I like. You see, the problem comes in is this. is the second point. is what starts us on the slippery slope of sin is a discontent with the will of God. You see, what happens is, as Christians, we are presented with two options only. Really, it comes down to this. It is first and foremost that we submit to the belief that what God wants for us is the best. I'll say it again. Do you believe this morning that what God wants for us is the best? Because what happens when temptation starts to breathe down your neck? That's what's on trial. Because what happened to Adam and Eve, it is the classic masterclass of temptation. They have been told they cannot touch one fruit in the Garden of Eden. And what does Satan say? He says, you know what, guys? God's withholding something from you here. You're missing out. Because if you eat from this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll get to enjoy all the privileges and all the power and all the wonder of equal status with him. In other words, God's withholding something from you. And if you don't take this, you're going to miss out. And friends, that is the temptation for you and me. And it takes a prior commitment. I'm going to make this very clear this morning. You have to decide as a single person, as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, As a businessman, you have to decide that God's will, it is the best for your life because I'm telling you, when that shady deal is before you and you can make a lot of cash with just a bribe or do some embezzlement or see that lovely woman in the office or there are certain things that are pressing. Maybe it's an opportunity to marry someone who's not a believer. When it's pressing down on you, what's on trial is God is your will the best and you have to in that moment have a prior commitment to say yes. And James in chapter 5, he is such a wise guy. He says, don't you know that before you resist the, the devil so that he flees from you, you have to submit yourselves to God. And what is submission? Is saying, God, your will for my life, it is the best. And once you have settled that, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. But if that is not your primary peg in the ground, church, I'm gonna tell you now from personal experience, You'll be whipped around by every wind and wave of pleasure or desire or philosophy. You have to come to a place in your life where you say, God's will is the best for me. And what happened with this guy? He looked from a far way off. He looked into that country and it was so appealing to him. That's the problem is he believed what was outside of the will of God, the household of his father, was better than what was in. And so the first slippery slope of sin is this, is that we begin to give into a discontent with the boundaries that God has laid down for us. We begin to doubt his wisdom, being able to guard our lives and the purpose he has for it. And the next point that happens is this slope happens fast. Immediately when he gives into the sin, there is distance that begins to come into him, between him and the father. We've got an, And today, very clear from God's word, you cannot have, I cannot have an intimate relationship with the father when there is active disobedience. Because ultimately what happens is there's a separation that begins to form between the father and the son. And the son in pursuing sin has chosen to be increasingly distant. The third thing is this, is that sin always feels great at the time. And this is why we can justify it. And for some of us, we know this so well. When we choose sin, what happens in the beginning, it feels great because you cast off all the restraints. Not so? You live recklessly, man. The jewel is awesome. And you just go for it. And God becomes the biggest distant memory, and you throw off that conscience that's so heavy. You throw it, and you just have a good time. But friends, the clock starts ticking the moment we start giving into sin. And what we find is this: is eventually sin leaves us bankrupt. I want it to be very clear for us this morning that sin never pays; it only takes. And you will spend your life, and some of us here, like me, have learned very hard lessons of our wealth, and our health, and our time, and our relationships. We give them all up for the sake of the pursuit of pleasure. And at the end, we're left destitute. Because ultimately, sin always seems so promising, but disappoints. And I'm willing to bet don't be fooled this morning. We have to give up a lot to pursue what's against God's will for us. Some of us have given up families. Some of us have given up many, many costly things. And in the end, when we look to lean on them, none of them can rescue us. And this is the situation for this man. Here he is. He's given up the household of the father to go in wild jawling with his friends. Where are those friends in his hour of need? Can they save him? Where are those citizens from the far country that they put so much store on, that he gave so much up for? Can they save him? No, in actual fact, in his hour of need, he's left alone. Friends, this morning, I want us to be very clear in our lives is that there is nothing innocent and pretty about sin. Sin is not a unicorn with a rainbow. Sin is not my little pony. In actual fact, if we touch it, That's what it says in in Genesis chapter 3. Don't even touch the fruit. That was the command of God. Because, and this is a warning for you and me this morning. If any of us are are even considering touching, there is temptation in your office or in your home or on your computer screen. Whatever it is this morning. I am telling you now, don't touch it. Run from it as fast as you can. Because if you start to engage, the slope is slippery. And in the end, my friend, none of us, none of us escape the consequences of sin, which is a deep brokenness and regret. So thirdly, how did he recover? And this is the wonderful thing about this story. And if you like me, I praise God for this phrase. Because in verse 17 it said he came to himself and the first part of recovery is this is that the lights go on to the reality of what the state we are really in that's how it works until that comes about there's no recovery but praise God in this place of desperation God breaks in, and he sees. And he says it like this. He says, look at me. I'm eating here amongst the pigs when the hired servants in my father's household enjoy bread and everything that is good. He can see for the first time how far he's fallen. And there is no recovery until that sinks in, in you and me. And I want to use this as an encouragement this morning for some of you like our family who have prayed for years for those who we love, friends, colleagues, to come and find Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But the longer we pray for, sometimes it happens that we begin to see, like in my own family, one of my close family members losing their job, losing their house, living in some of the most difficult circumstances of their life. But I tell you what, there's one thing that I had to learn is that despite the despair of seeing the ongoing pressure on their lives, God used that to bring them to Him. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you have family members and friends, you are trusting for salvation, who have wandered far from God, I want to say to you this morning, don't stop praying. And would you be willing this morning for God to exercise his sovereign wisdom in how he chooses to bring them to him? Don't despair. But there was a few things that this young prodigal had to do in order to recover. The first was, he had to make a decision to come back. And friends, this morning, don't wait for God to kind of overpower you with his will. Or don't wait for your husband or your wife to do this for you. You have to, I have to make a decision to come back to the Father. In verse 18, it says, I will arise and go to my Father. He decides. And this really is what repentance is. Repentance is coming to a place where we say, God, you are right, I am wrong. Please forgive me. You have to do that. No one can do it for you. But I know know that in saying that this morning, of saying you need to come back to God, some of you are afraid to do so. And I want to say this morning, I totally relate. Because as a Christian, I know I haven't just messed up once, I haven't just messed up twice. It's been many times. And sometimes I go in the same area, will God receive me? Because really, my track record here is so poor. And I want to say, I know that there are people in this room that have denied good advice over and over again. You've told guys to get lost. You've made decisions willingly. Sin doesn't just happen in a vacuum. We actively decide to pursue a course. And many of us here have a long track record Of decisions we regret and what that creates in us is this a deep deep fear of how God will respond to us that's why he makes his little speech people wondered why he goes through all the effort of saying father I am no longer worthy to be called your son take me back as a hired servant he's afraid that the father rightfully so would be angry And so he's trying to hedge his bets and appease the father. For some of us, that's really real for you. You're saying, Matt, how can I come back? You know my life. The second thing is shame. He feels no longer worthy to be called a son. And I want to say this morning, these two things are very real in trying to recover from a mistake or a regret. Because there is someone called Satan who is working very hard to make sure you never come. And the way he gets at us is by angling really specifically this feeling of, I'm not worthy. Well, there's some wonderful things in this passage this morning. That you will require to hold to if you're going to recover. The first is this notice God's response. And we see this in the Father. Is that while he is still a long way off, his Father saw him. You know what the wonderful thing about being a child of God is? No matter how far we wander or no matter how far we go, God's eye is always upon us. We are never, ever, ever out of his gaze. And so the, the son thinks it's going to be a long journey to come back, and the father's already watching, and he's poised. The second thing that is amazing in this story is that not, he's not filled with anger, or he doesn't moralize the son, or doesn't rebuke the son and say, you should have, don't do that, you must. It says he is filled with Compassion. And he shows this compassion in how he runs in such an undignified way. You might be saying, Well, anyone will be a fool to take me back. My wife will never take me back. My kids will never receive me. My boss has written me off. I want to say to you, there's somebody who's willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world to get you back, and that's God. He doesn't care. He's willing to be undignified in his way that he comes towards you. And you want to ask me how quick is reconciliation with God, how quickly that restoration, that relationship can be restored? In seconds. Seconds. The son doesn't have to climb every mountain, forge every sea, work his way back to God. Oh. The father runs. Restoration's immediate. You know what the father does is he kisses the son Who of you have ever smelt a pig star There's only one thing in my life that has physically almost knocked me off my feet from stench it is a pig star It was on a mission trip I felt almost overcome And I want to say to you this morning don't think that this son was coming to the father all neat and tidy He stank the significance of that for you and me is this, is that he didn't fix up anything before the Father received him. He just came as he was. You want to know what the amazing thing about grace is, is the revelation that we don't look good enough to deserve anything from God. And this morning, he kissed that star son embraced him before he could change anything the father was reconciled to him and i want to say that to you this morning you don't have to fix your circumstances to get to god you have to get to god first to fix your circumstances i'll say it again you don't try and fix your life and then come to god you need god to fix your life And you know this morning, he receives you as you are. That is grace in its full measure. And something wonderful happens. As the father shows how totally forgiven the son is by removing the past, he clothes the son in new garments. He puts a ring on his finger. He says, "This this is my son. My status upon him is just as it was before. And the removal of those old clothes, that smelliness, is that when God forgives, he wipes away completely. And the son is able to live and operate in the household of God with absolute dignity and freedom. My closing remarks are this. When we look at this story we must be really really confident and secure in our salvation. There is no other way to come back to God with confidence, peace and a sense of a fresh start without anything over your head until you realize this in your life that once you are a child of God. You are always a child of God. You do not have a judge in heaven saying this is how you must live and he's assessing your performance and your ability to meet the criteria before he issues help or a verdict. No, no. Do you want to know why I hope everybody in this room is a Christian? And if you're not a Christian yet, I want to tell you, you know what forgiveness of sin gets you? is an unshakable loving father in heaven that says nothing can separate you from my love in Christ Jesus. You will find it in Christ, but that's what's on offer to you. Once a child of God, you are given the dignity of having a father in heaven whom you can approach at any stage, at any hour. And he's not gonna listen to you based on an assessment of how well you're doing. He's gonna base his, his help upon you, upon your position as a son And a daughter. Man, when my daughter cries, I'm quick to listen. To be honest, if I'm really showing my carnal state, all other babies can be crying. But when Sarah cries, she gets my attention because I'm her dad. And there is this bond. Notice, although sin introduces distance, it never removes sonship. Does that make sense to you this morning? Because you're going to have to lean into that when you are recovering and knowing, how will God receive me? He will only receive you as a son and daughter, not as a hired servant. You can't work your way back. You can't earn your way back. What is given to you as a gift in Jesus Christ at your new birth, at your salvation, remains a gift. And I want to say to you this morning, how big a view do you have of your salvation Because once you become a Christian, there is no going back. You are a new creation. And my friend, that's why when you try and go back to the life you lived before that you came to faith, you cannot, it doesn't taste the same. You don't have the same freedom of conscience. It feels like you're a square pig in a round hole. Because what Christ has done in you, it is the eternal work of a new birth. You are elevated, eternal. When you are born again, you are born into a country and you get a new citizenship. When you are born again, you become a citizen of heaven who God the Father is. You are under a new law. You are under grace. You are given this incredible stature as a child of God, and it is given to you as a gift. Once a child of God, always a child of God. There is not a single moment in the story where the son stops being a son and the father stops being a father. But I want to say this. It does come with a warning in that he did still lose something because of his carelessness. It was his inheritance. He lost something that God wanted to give him because he continually pushed against the wisdom of the Father. He did not lose his position But he did lose his inheritance and so this morning I want us as a church myself included to remember that the decisions we make in our life matter to God and the greatest picture of this are the Israelites in Egypt simply by faith in the blood of the Passover lamb they were released from captivity Egypt but what was their destination What was their destination? The promised land. That was their inheritance. God had more for them than just forgiveness of sin. He had a land to be taken. There was something that was apportioned to them for them to gain. And friends, you are not saved by good works, but you are saved for for good works. And faithfulness to Jesus one day will be honored. And that is 1 Corinthians 3. And you need to know, fix your eyes on obedience to God. Why? Because he notices. He notices. And he is so generous. He's not holding you on talks of whether you are son in or out the household. No, 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 that is done. That foundation is laid in your life by grace. But he's saying, build on this foundation. Church, get going in your life. Think about your life. Whatever you do for Jesus will echo into eternity. It doesn't matter how painful right now. It doesn't matter how difficult. You keep your eye on where you are going to be one day. Your home is heaven. And on that day, this is serious. Not all of us will have the same entrance. We'll get there but we will not all receive the inheritance, the well-done, good and faithful servant. If we are not careful, 1 Corinthians 3 says, we will be saved, but as through fire. And this morning, I want to say, lean into the security of the love of the Father, but do it soberly. Recognize the decisions we make in our lives They have great consequences. And God's heart for you as a father, my heart for my daughter, is to see her prosper in every area of her life. I want to see her flourish. But it means leaning into the wisdom of the father. The authority that his will is best in my life that the boundaries he sets are respect with great wisdom and great honor and great carefulness because ultimately, it matters. Let's pray. Father, just want to stop for a moment and say, Lord, thank you for your love. It is so powerful. It is so consistent and true. The love of the Father is here. It's here. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. The eye of the Father of heaven is on you. And Lord, I just pray for that love to come right now. Come into hearts this morning that are doubtful. Come into hearts this morning that are far from you. Come afresh into hearts this morning that are close, Lord, that the love of the Father in Jesus Christ be poured out afresh in our hearts. If you have come to a place where you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are secure this morning and you can come. You can come. The love of the Father has not changed. But Lord, this morning we recognize that we have been bought with a price. That the blood of Jesus has set us apart, not by our good works, but by our Lord's, this wonderful honor of becoming co-workers with Jesus. That you dignify us not just as handouts of grace, but Lord, you raise us to a fellow status of co-heirs in Jesus Christ with an inheritance apportioned for each. And I pray this morning that Lord, as we live our lives, when nobody sees in the office, in the quietness of prayer, nobody's there to applause, nobody's there to recognize and pat, on, pat us on the back, I pray that when we have Satan breathing down our necks, saying, come on, give in, you can have it all and you can have it now. I pray that we all remember that our standing in that moment echoes in heaven. And Lord, make us wise, make us sober, make us full of commitments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.